0: We'll be in Ephesians chapter two, starting about verse eleven. I'm trying not to be in Ephesians forever, the only sermons, but it's hard to uh, know where to start and stop a lot of times. And uh, what he's going to be talking about as we get here, as you already see on the on the screen, is is the unity of grace is basically what he his point is going to be as he goes through this this section here and. And leads us to that idea of being the manifold wisdom of God. Now, if you didn't notice this morning, I started out with a suit jacket on. It got hot. I took the suit jacket off. And then just a few minutes ago, I had to have my <laughs> wife help dress me uh, to get it back on again. Uh, but I remember years ago, a friend of, my, a friend of mine and I drove cross country from Texas to St. Louis to uh, visit a church. And the reason was because my hero preacher was there. Uh, not the guitar player, but uh, a guy named Landon Saunders, and it was interesting because he started out this, it was a seminar on the, on the letter of 1st John, you know, going through marathon style. It started out in a three-piece suit with a tie. People told him he looked a little too stuffy, so he got rid of the tie. A little bit later on in the seminar, they, they were still complaining, he looked too stuffy, so he got rid of the vest, and then more or less like this, and then... Uh, Probably by the time we got to the end of the seminar weekend, he was just wearing a a nice dress shirt and a pair of slacks. And the other side was saying, well, you just don't look respectful enough. So regardless of what he did, he couldn't really make anybody happy. And we run into that a lot in the church in various ways and various issues. And when we talk about the problem between the Jew and the Gentile in Ephesians chapter 2... Bringing that up to the modern times, we have to also understand just the difference of the way people are and how we get along together. There's um old, let me turn this on, is it going to work? Yeah, apparently it doesn't want to work. Okay, I'm not sure why. It made a beep sound like it didn't like me. There we go have no idea. Solomon said this thousands of years ago, 3,000 years ago, he makes this statement. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. And you say, no, Mark, there's all kinds of technology that Solomon had absolutely no clue about. That's not what he's speaking about. What Solomon says is the problems of yesterday are the problems of today, and they'll be the problems of tomorrow, especially when it comes to the heart of man and the heart of mankind. There's really no new news. There's no original philosophy that's coming out. There's no new religion that's anything different than what we've already heard about. What was is what is. And we just keep reinventing ways of presenting it. You know, you can put a new name on it, but it's still the same old thing. And when it comes to living together and how you love your neighbor, especially within the body, and that's going to be our main focus today. It's not, not the world at large. There's all kinds of issues and problems up there. But we, as a body of believers, how do we love our neighbor? How do we honor God? Well, there's nothing new. There's nothing that hasn't already been tried. And one of the biggest problems sometimes with loving your brother is well, we don't do too well at it all the time. And we actually find ways to justify why not. You know, there's, I don't know how many different stories I've heard of about different churches and different things that are going on. And it just doesn't, you know, you just don't feel good about it. And and I've given a lot of examples over the time, so I'll probably not repeat them all again for you. You know, in the book of Judges, there's a battle that takes place within Israel. Now, they shouldn't be fighting each other, should they? They should be fighting the bad guys outside, but they're fighting each other. And you know how you could find out whether the guy needed executed or not? His accent. If he didn't say the word correctly, they killed him. Now, in case you're unaware of this, this still happens in the churches in Texas. But uh, they might execute you with the wrong accent. But the problem really wasn't the wording. It was a problem that they just weren't getting along as brothers. And that's an extreme example. Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is here with these churches. And they believe he has spent three years preaching the gospel to them. They know the story. They know the story of salvation. They know the plan of God's salvation. But now he's reaching back to them through this letter. And he wants them to understand their role in this world as the church and it's more than having just the right message it's more than having the right scripture that you can quote it's more than three songs in a prayer he describes it as the manifold wisdom of God and he looks at and we haven't even got to this verse we're still in chapter two but he, he looks at them and he says as diverse as you are as different as you are when, your work, when it works together for the glory of God, you're the manifold wisdom of God. And I actually kind of went and researched that word again. I periodically do that. But it's, the word is basically one used for like the, the blending of various colors. So I always like to describe it as a tapestry. When you take all the different things and how different they are one from another and you put them all together, it creates this beautiful picture, this beautiful blending of colors and this beautiful design which Paul says is the manifold wisdom of God. And often when we think of the manifold wisdom, if you haven't really looked at Ephesians and taken it verse by verse and and then put it all together, you might think, well, the manifold wisdom of God is, he's so complex, he's so deep, he's more than we can understand. That's not Paul's point. Yes, you were right when you say that. But that's not what Ephesians is saying. He's saying we, you, are the manifold wisdom of God. And it's being known through the church. That doesn't mean, yes, we have the scriptures, and so therefore, because we have the scriptures and all the deep and the the difficult passages that we will interpret for the world if they would just listen. No, keep reading, just read the whole letter. Keep this in the context of Ephesians. And he says, the church is the manifold wisdom of God because when we do it right, angels pay attention. The authorities in heavenly places. Now People talk a lot. But sometimes we don't act a lot. So the first truth that Paul's going to put forward to us, that he's putting to the Ephesian people, is the goal that, of unity based on the fact that, guess what? You are a lost soul, only saved by the grace of God. And there is no pecking order. Now, we all know that. You know, one of the great, you know, we always say, yes, but therefore, but, but, how would we say it? Uh, Therefore, but by the grace of God, there go I. I, I've said it wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. And so in our pseudo humility, we'll say, oh, well, you know, because of God, I am what I am. And I'm glad I'm not like that other person. Well, that's a step in the right direction. But the reality of life is for me to truly understand, and ask us in the church, that I am here today completely undeserving of God's mercy, of God's will, and undeserving of the gift of life. I don't have any bragging rights. We know this, and we admit it, but Paul says that's where we got to start before we can actually understand what it means to be unified as a church. Paul speaks to the church, and he makes this statement. He says, you were dead. You know, we're going to go through quite a few passages here. It's, well, it's actually only 11, but you know, I know with the, you know, the, the patience or the attention span, it gets a little rough. But he says there right in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And then he gets a little further. and He says, you too were children of wrath. The crescendo is up there in verses 4 and 5. He says, but God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he finishes it off and says, by grace you have been saved. Paul's not trying to write theology here. And then yeah, it, It's there. So if you're a big doctrinal buff and you're trying to you know, dot all the I's and cross the T's or dot the T's and cross the I's, I don't know which way you do it. You go to these passages and you'll say, well, here's all this great theology that we need to understand as God's people, the church, Christ. That's not his point. Because the problem that he is, and I don't even know if i describe it as a problem, but the ongoing continual challenge for the Ephesians is their unity of love. And he says, you don't get along. Maybe you forgot where you came from. Because you're only where you are because God is rich in mercy. And he made us alive together. With that together, you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, we have the Jews over here, we have the Gentiles over here. And then, you know, there's a really despicable people they call barbarians. Everybody made fun of that. You know, you know what barbarian means? It basically means a guy that doesn't even know how to speak Greek. You know, when you travel the world, you know what the nice thing about international travel is these days? You don't have to know French anymore. English will do. And But these barbarians didn't know the common language of Greek. So he takes the barbarians, he takes the Gentiles, he takes the Jews, and whatever else is out there, the slaves, the bastards, the women, the men, the rich, the poor. And he says he has made us alive together in Christ. And there's probably your second lesson. There are no solo Christians. You don't get saved on your own time, at your own pace, and in your own way. We're in this together. You go down, I go down. You ever read the prayers of Nehemiah? And if you know anything about Nehemiah, he's a righteous man, he's a good man, he's a godly man, and he cares about what happens to God's people. But when he prays, he looks at the sins and the evil of his people, and he says, God, We have done this. God, forgive us for what we are. He doesn't say, God, take care of your people out there. I'm doing what's good. What's their problem? No, Nehemiah says, this is my problem. Because these are my people. And in the church, we are made alive together in Christ Jesus. And you're saved by grace. So the only question at this point as Paul tries to go through this, unity of grace is who's in charge and This is where it really gets sticky and and it may be not so much for us here because we're kind of we're kind of isolated You know if, if you always heard, you know, you can't really be a parent with an only child You know, and I know there's some parents out there. They'll have one child and you'll I'll mark that's offensive but you know there's no arguments to settle, you know, who touched me, or don't cross this line, or whatever. Those, par- you know, those parents don't know what it's like. You've got to have that second one before you've got a problem. You know, if you live on a deserted island, it's really easy to get along with your neighbors. And so sometimes for us as a church, we're kind of small. And we're kind of out here isolated. We don't want it to remain that way. That's part of the reason we're building that thing over there. We want to actually bring problems to us, believe it or not. We want to bring problems to our door. And so who's in charge? It's not been very long ago. I had a a brother. Uh, It's another place. And he decided he was going to give a dinner one night. And he didn't ask us all to attend. He basically ordered us all to attend. I don't always do well with orders like that. and, And justifiably, I had some other things to do. And the next day, he was very upset because I didn't attend. And a few other people, maybe I led them astray. Who knows? And so I was kind of indirectly reprimanded for not being there. But it was like his idea of unity was, let's all be unified. I give the orders. You all follow. Surely you've never met anybody like that, right? You know, but that was his idea of unity. He had no intention of dividing the church. It was just that he called the shots, and if, you, if you're a believer that believed in unity, you would be there. Now, that was just kind of a silly dinner one night. But on a bigger scale, who is in charge? Well, we have our instant answers real quick, and, and you know you can be right and wrong at the same time. Somebody asked me a question the other day, and they said, what's your answer to that question? And, well, my first answer is that's a bad question. and So let's get a better question but you could be right and wrong at the same time. Because first thing, we'll say, well, the elders and the deacons are in charge. Which makes it simple here. We don't have any deacons. Or I'll tell you who's in charge. The one with the loudest voice and the deepest voice. <laughs> Maybe the one with the biggest bank account is in charge. You know, in mission fields, you know what the best way to do church in a mission field is? The way we've always done it back in America. So you go to the a foreign country and you go and you see church services, you're going to probably feel real comfortable because, not because they're doing it scripturally as much as they're doing it like Americans would do it. Who's in charge? And if it fails to work, well, that means those people are just not dedicated enough or faithful enough or or maybe that community really doesn't deserve it. When Paul writes of the church, Gentiles, Jews and barbarians, he doesn't say that any group is superior to the other. But sometimes we just can't help but have that attitude. It's like, I, uh, I've probably said this a dozen times or a hundred times, people say, Mark, you think you're always right. I thought, well, I wouldn't open my mouth if I thought I was wrong. You know, it's, you know if, if I think I'm wrong, I'll probably be quiet and just kinda let you come up with an answer. But at the same time, we gotta think, who's in charge? Who makes these decisions over the way the church goes or how we live as a church, how we get along with each other? And so here we have the long passage of reading here, and and he says, therefore, remember that you formerly the Gentiles, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision. There's actually a little name calling going on there, whether you, you know, today we don't see it. We're, We're seeing technical terms, but when David looked at Goliath and said, you uncircumcised Philistine, it was not a compliment. Because which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you, you Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought together. For he himself, for he himself is our peace. And he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing it in his flesh. The enmity, which is the, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. A lot of of things in that reading. You might have to go back and read it a few times on your own. But he looks at the first group He says, Yes, you were separated from God. You were lost. You, what's the, dare I say the word? Heathens. But at the same time, these Jewish people over here had built a wall between you and them to keep you out. And that wall was called the law with all of its ordinances. But Christ broke down the dividing wall by abolishing it In his flesh. He says, we'll start out acknowledging the problem. A little name calling goes on there. But that which has divided us is destroyed. He says, that dividing wall. Now, again, originally 2,000 years ago, this is talking about a a battle between (laughs) primarily Jews and Gentiles, and that just doesn't do a whole lot for us today because. Maybe you've read about a Jewish Christian or even seen a photograph of one on the internet, but you probably never bumped into one. You know, in those days, the Jews were the majority, but quickly becoming the minority. So where does that fit in today? It still fits. Because today, sometimes the battle is between whether you're an American or you're an African or you're an Asian, whether you're Hispanic or whether you're white Well, if you're from the older generation or if you're from the newer generation. And sometimes we have a hard time seeing it because, honestly, we think that we're doing what's best. We've always done it this way. Of course, on the other hand, the other group says, you've done that way forever. It's time to try something new. Which one is right? Who's in charge? Who makes these decisions? After all, don't we all want the same thing? We want what's good for the church. So in the end, why not do it my way? And we kind of get bogged down. It's, it's this love and fellowship thing, you know, and, it's, and there's all kinds of different topics that might come up between, you know, you know the discussion used to be one cup and two. And, and my dad, who, you know, we just had a memorial service for him. He grew up in a, I don't know if it was a one cup church or a two cup church. I think they might have had one for each side, which I'm not sure what scripture they use on that one. And the old ladies would always sit up front so they could get at the cup before the tobacco chewers did. <laughs> but we get bogged down sometimes in these different things. You know, should we clap our hands? Should we not clap our hands? One cup, two cups. You know, And I'm saying which ones are important or not important. Baptism by immersion or just a sinner's prayer. And we're really good at debating doctrine. And I'm not making light of any of those topics I just brought up. The problem is, we don't always do it with love for the other. So the good starting point that Paul brings to try and solve the issues that are going on in the Ephesian church is let's have one body without enmity. No hatred, no anger. And it's tougher than you think. Imagine going to a discussion or a conversation or deliberating thoughts with somebody But your number one concern is not winning the argument, but winning the brother. And at this point, you know, there might even be a smell of smoke right now between your ears. Could you say, wait a minute, Mark. The word of God prevails over everything. Nothing is more important than the truth and doing things God's way. God's word rules. And it's kind of hard for me to disagree with that. Because, yes... God's word rules. But when we look at the way Paul unfolds this idea in this chapter, he doesn't do it the way we do it. He talks about abolishing in his flesh the enmity. He says the first thing has to go is that emotional division. That's enmity. He didn't say abolishing in his flesh the difference between an old covenant and a new covenant. He uses the word enmity. Now, you know... If I have, if there's enmity between me and Felicia, I better not turn my back on her. We're talking about anger. We're talking about emotional things. And what I love is he did it. It says abolishing in his flesh, verse 15. How did he abolish it in his flesh? He suffered. And all of a sudden, when we're wanting to argue about this point versus that point, or this way versus that way, this culture versus that culture... Paul says, stop, think. He abolished it through horrible suffering and horrible shame. That's what it means to have abolished it in his flesh. The painful sacrifice of the charge on the cross and we insult and belittle that sacrifice of Christ wanting to see who's in charge. That we might reconcile them both into one body. He says, that's the whole idea. World universal faith found in the church. That manifold wisdom of God. Peace to you who are far away, and peace to you who are near. In other words, guess what? Both groups needed reconciliation. Both groups needed forgiveness. Both groups needed Grace. For through him we have both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So before he gets to the commandment of how you decide what's right and wrong, he wants to decide why it matters. I said, well, it's going to be honoring God. Keep reading your Bibles. Keep reading God and keep reading Christ and see what He says. There is a love for one another that is so important. Probably with every sermon that I preach, there's a couple different things that you could put up there in your mind and test and say, did Mark get it right? One thing you need to always put up there is, did it honor the death, the burial, and the resurrection? Did I preach the death, the burial, and the resurrection? Somewhere in some way in that lesson. The second thing that you need to put up there to see did Mark get it right is the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. We put all of that sometimes aside over one cup or two. Now, I'm using that example because that's not an issue here. But we could probably come up with some that are issues here. And if you travel and you remember and you worship in various parts of the country or various parts of the world, it's amazing how many times you'll see some issues come up. And the last thing anybody's worried about is love your neighbor as yourself. And does this honor the death of Beryl and a resurrection? When we choose an unbreakable bond with our (laughs) brothers and sisters, it gets pretty easy from that point forward. That, regardless of what the discussion is, I love Rich Book. And that's not going to be broken. I love Keith Pennington. And that's not going to be broken. Son in laws, I'm not sure. No, whoa. <laughs> but that's the unbreakable bond. Before we go anywhere for- forward, and you need to go back and read all the Ephesians again and see did Mark get it right? Because I think I did. Like I said, I wouldn't talk if I thought I was wrong. And that's his grace based unity. We go to the book of Ephesians so much to teach about, we are saved by grace and not by works, lest any man could boast. That's not Paul's point. He says, yes, that's true. Now put that in conjunction with how you treat one another within the body of Christ and how you love one another. There are no superior Christians. There are only forgiven ones. You say, well, that will never work. Have you really tried it? It won't be easy. That's not what the point was. The final word will not be American or traditional or newly enlightened. The final word will be God's word. But he, before he gets to this verse here where he says, you know, we're built the church on the foundation. You know, Jesus is the cornerstone, and the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And in other words, this verse is saying we build the church or the word of God. This is our final answer. But before he got to that verse, he said, are you committed to one another? Do you love one another? Is there an unbreakable bond between you and your brother or your sister? Whether they're brown, black, white, whether they speak English or English with a Texas accent. Bible discussions are tough, but first and foremost, yeah, you've got to know your Bible. And I didn't put this verse up here, but you know it. You know, be diligent to present yourselves a proof of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. You need to know the scriptures. But at the same time, we're not just committed to one another, you know, to say that, well, we agree to disagree. God's word rules in the end. But if I'm not committed to you from the heart, I'm not sure what else matters. You know, some people get a little upset because they have to be once a week for an hour. And they actually give prayers of thanksgiving to God when we cancel for uh, Christmas or the Super Bowl. But if we're going to make church work, that unity of grace, to be God's people we unite in faith, we need to spend a lot more time together. A lot more time in fellowship, a lot more time in praise, and a lot more time in ministry. We need to be that God's people. That manifold wisdom of God. We're not a group of uncommitted, independent, casual acquaintances who just happen to enter the same building once a week. Tolerate each other for an hour. We are the body of Christ. And when we do church the way church is meant to be done, we become the manifold wisdom of God. The church of the New Testament is not a group of people trying to get to heaven. We are those saved by grace, doing the works that God prepared uh, ahead for us to do. And our oneness will explode before a very divided world. It'll be a oneness based on mercy, grace, peace, love, not just for each other, but we'll have that same mercy for those yet to come. No easy path. It's so difficult, I can't do it alone. I need a lot of help. And I bet you do also. We've gone over a little bit. but I hope you understand just a little bit more what Paul means when he talks about the manifold wisdom of God. It's you, and it's me. Whatever you need, we ask you to come now as we stand and as we sing. Restore my spirit, Lord, I need restore. My heart is weary, please help me, dear Lord. I stand in need of more strength from your work. Renew my love, rebuild my faith, oh, restore my soul. Revive the fire, Lord, deepen my soul. Stir my desire to...